1: Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself?
0: And welcome to Carol. Carol? Co- okay. Hey, this is Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and I am here talking with you about sexual addiction, post traumatic stress disorder, and any other malady that you may be feeling as a result of addictive behavior. I feel so fortunate tonight because I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Boriskin who actually works at the Meadows specifically with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know you may wonder and ask yourself, you know, what is post-traumatic stress and how would I know if I had it? And so we're going to be talking with Dr. and we're going to be trying to figure out Could you have experienced something in your childhood that has led to um, traumatic reenactment, traumatic stress responses? You know, it can be very, very difficult uh, if you're not geared towards clinical issues to know what heart palpitations mean and flashbacks and and not trusting and and many of the symptoms of post traumatic stress, and so again, we're really fortunate to have one of the premier doctors on to talk about this issue and and clearly, the Meadows is obviously one of the most important treatment centers in the United States for helping people with drug and alcohol addiction. And I know that I send all of my clients uh, to the Meadows to get help with sex addiction because they really have one of the best facilities in the United States. So we are so happy to be working with them, and and I write a blog for them on sexual addiction. And it's just very important to have healthy um, residential treatment programs available you and they're, and they're willing to work with you at any point. So I'm really looking forward uh, to talking with Dr. Borskin. And if you wonder whether you have a sexual addiction and you want to know more about your symptoms, you can always email me at carolthecoach at AOL.com. I am available uh, for consultation to get you referred to the right the right service to the right program to the right facility you name it i am more than happy to do that for you so i clearly want to be that guide for you so that we can definitely work together to get you the help that you desire so as i am waiting for um Dr. Jerry Borskin to call in. He is going to be calling in here in about eight minutes. I want to talk to you a little bit about what are the symptoms of sexual addiction. You know, there's been some hype in the media, specifically on the Dr. Phil show, uh, where there have been different PhDs and MDs that, that questioned whether sexual addiction really. Um, is a full-fledged diagnosis. And I know if if you're like the majority of the public, you too have probably said, isn't that just bad behavior? Well, so much of addiction, when we're talking process addictions, that's eating disorders, that's gambling, that's sex, has to do with out-of-control compulsive behavior. And I can't highlight enough how important it is for you to know that there are people that absolutely cannot stop their behavior, no matter how hard they try. Literally, they are unable to control it. They've promised themselves a million times that they would. Maybe this sounds like you. I mean, have you told yourself, I am not going to look at pornography or I am absolutely going to stop cheating on my wife. Maybe you said, you know what, I am not going to massage parlors anymore. I absolutely am not going to to spend another penny on prostitutes. And you meant that, whether that lasted for a minute, an hour, a day, a week, or a month. And then all of a sudden you you went back to it again. And you felt worse about yourself because you broke your own sacred contract to yourself. Um, Maybe you needed to drink to um, deal with the shame and the guilt, the sadness and the pain. Maybe you needed to use cocaine or marijuana or ecstasy. Um, oftentimes people will medicate with a substance to either get the courage up to experience the behavior they so desperately want and don't want, and other times they medicate afterwards because the feelings of shame and guilt are so extreme that they can't live with themselves. And so I'm here to tell you that when these two situations occur, the compulsivity and the feeling out of control, you have enough reason to say, okay, I probably need an assessment by a certified sexual addictions therapist. And what I really highly recommend is that you get on the website, www.sexhelp.com, and take the test that helps you to determine, do you have a problem? Now, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? Um, And yet, at the same time, it's the start. It's the start of you getting healthy and figuring out what you need to do to make your life better. If you have a question for myself or Dr. Jerry Borskin, or maybe you have a question about your own behaviors, you can give us a call at 646-595-3284 and know that we will absolutely handle it anonymously. You don't have to give your real name. And you don't even have to identify where you're from. You can just ask the question and know that you're in a safe place. The good news is if you're listening to this show, you have some concerns about your own behavior, or you have some concerns about your partner, whether he be male or she be female, and you want more information and you want more education. You know, every week we try to ask um, the tough questions, and we work diligently to provide you information on subjects that are related to sexual addiction As I said, tonight we're going to be interviewing Dr. Jerry Borskin, and he um, works at the Meadows, and um, he is an expert in PTSD. He's going to talk about how did he develop that expertise, what are the co-occurring addictions, who's at risk for developing this problem, what is it, And, of course, I'm going to want to know, is anybody immune to it? Um, Certainly we've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. uh, When we've talked to veterans in the community, we're dealing right now with a situation um, that is very tense, close to Washington, D.C., with the shooting that's occurred at the naval base. I don't have any reason to believe that that's a veteran, although he certainly served in some capacity. We'll find out more as as the news unveils. But, you know, people that truly experience post-traumatic stress, whether it's because of a trauma they experienced as a kid or whether they were in the war whether they experienced some sort of major crisis, they're at a higher risk for suicide, um, in part because they medicate in part because they don't think it's ever going to get better. Um, so as we talk about post-traumatic stress and, and we find out about how it affects people, um, its chronic and physical condition, and what to look for in this good treatment, we're also going to do the, the invariable, and I'm telling you, we always ask our experts for Resources in the community, books that can get you started, and getting the help you need. So I'm really looking forward to talking with him. Now, I am uh, so happy that in so many ways this show is gaining so much popularity because it means people are going to iTunes and they're going to Blog Talk Radio, and they're looking up under the term of sexual addiction, and they're finding the show. It saddens me that this is epidemic in proportion, but I also understand that it is something that can be managed. So I don't want you to give up hope, and I want you to know there are resources available, and we're going to be talking about those resources. Again, you can call the show at six four six five nine five three two eight four and know that we handle everything very confidentially. You are listening to Carol Jensen Sheets. I'm Carol the coach and we truly want to help you to work through any issues that you have surrounding addiction. So tonight I feel very fortunate to be interviewing Dr. Jerry Borskin and he works at the Meadows. Doctor Borskin, is that you on the line? Yes, it is. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to help us understand post-traumatic stress disorder because a lot of the clients that I work with and a lot of our listeners have had questions about post-traumatic stress. And so I know you're an expert in the field. So can you explain a little bit to our listeners in simple terms, what is PTSD?
2: Okay, PTSD is something that a lot of people have heard of, many people can describe, yet it is somewhat elusive and difficult to define. And part of that has to do with the inner experience of each individual being slightly different and at the same mm-hmm. time kind of universal in terms of similarity to patterns and symptoms. We didn't really understand what this phenomenon was uh, 30 years ago. When I first started in this field, um, we kind of knew that traumatic events changed people. And what we now know is that traumatic events, either a single big traumatic episode or a series of sustained lesser traumas, result in a change that is um, multidimensional in its consequences. And it really changes the way people feel, think, interact with others and their overall belief systems. So it's a powerful phenomenon, it's a game changer, and the odd thing is when you have it, you kind of know it, but at the same time, you might tend to deny it, and then at other times, it's something that makes you feel like you're separate, unique, crazy, or whatever, Um, but it's really the simplest definition I know, and one that I think has has a definite social merit is um, it's a normal set of reactions to insane circumstances. And there's some technical problems with the definitions, and academics would pull it apart. But really, it kind of captures what the game-changing was when we first really put our focus upon events rather than personal shortcomings. So I like to look at it as what happens to an individual as a consequence of overwhelming trauma or circumstances that are unfair, unmanageable, uncontrollable.
0: Well, that makes total sense. Now, you mentioned huge trauma or a series of smaller traumas, and, and sometimes I know the experts in the field call that big T or little T traumas.
2: Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you
0: give us some ideas of events that lead to post-traumatic stress disorder?
2: Well, the easiest way to, to um, discuss that is to go back a little bit into the sequence of how our attention to post-traumatic stress disorder began and how it has evolved when we first uh, looked at the consequences of traumatic events on individuals, we really were looking at soldiers exclusively. And that's kind of an easy um, population to focus on because I think anyone would agree that being in a war zone uh, is not exactly a comfortable, controllable, safe environment. And those who are exposed to the chaos of war, a fairly large percentage of them anywhere from oh, the estimates vary from 18% to like 35%, and sometimes it's as high as 90%, depending upon what kind of unit you're in, you'll develop the symptoms that we call post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's kind of very simple. In the early days, we really defined this as a result of Vietnam War and some activism among uh, veterans who had symptoms of something that had not been really um, honored or described in the literature, either politically or uh, professionally or or in any discussion until they became active and asserting um, the powers that be to recognize that war changes people. Shortly after, this was actually 1979 when the readjustment counseling act came into being, it was codified then by an act of Congress that veterans had something that we called by default at the time post-traumatic stress disorder, several names. Um, being considered for the phenomenon. But in 1980, it became part of the, uh, the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, Third Revision, where it became an official diagnosis. And then it was really focusing mostly on soldiers and sexual abuse survivors. Those are two populations that are kind of no-brainers. It's like, you know, someone who's been sexually assaulted, it, it's considered as horrific or worse in some instances than exposure to war trauma. But as the years went forward, we began to see that the definitions really fit other populations as well. In some instances, things as as difficult to put your finger on as verbal abuse, depending upon age and family dynamics. Uh, Parents who've lost children in car accidents or unpredictable deaths, these are other population groups that got added in by researchers when they said, you know what, we think many other populations with all kinds of sizes of T, big T, little T, in between, multiple cumulative T's, they all kind of produce the same series of symptoms. So, in part, what we look at as, as diagnosticians and clinicians is not how you got there. That is not really the, the relevant uh, criteria. The question is, do you have it? And if you have it, how do we help you uh, transcend that? So. From my vantage point, um, I don't really look at It's not my job to evaluate, was there trauma, a single event, or a bunch of little events that caused these symptoms? are they. Are, were you sufficiently feeling overpowered, out of control, and helpless and abused by situations that um, created this sense of powerlessness and um, also, along with it, a sense of responsibility? That's one of the core the features that we see with PTSD, is underneath a lot of the chaotic, contradictory symptoms is the sense that somehow I'm to blame for what went wrong. And you see this with small children. Small children who are exposed to traumatic events without any, any coaching or training begin to make attributions that, gee, I caused this event, I caused mom and dad to get divorced, whereas you would look at the same family with an 18-, 19-year-old, they'll have a more accurate attribution saying, you know, dad was an alcoholic, mom was codependent, they argued a lot, it was better that they separated, and they won't take personal responsibility. So age is a factor, as well as the nature of the trauma. There are many, many variables that come together that play a role in determining whether you get the um, the syndrome or not. So it would be overly simplistic to only focus on the nature of the trauma, although by by definition we do have to have some parsing in terms of, you know, whether the event is just an ordinary event. Certainly getting a parking ticket would not create PTSD, but having a fatal car accident where you're the sole survivor would. So there are gradations, but it's not our job as clinicians necessarily sort the event out. It's looking at the damage, the sense of powerlessness, and then the core symptoms that I'll happily describe for you if you like in terms of just the checklist of things. Uh, and, and among the more, more um, classically um, derived symptoms are, are the, the sense of cognitive intrusion when you become kind of obsessed with the event and have a hard time um, turning off from that obsessive ideation. But what's interesting is some of that obsessive ideation you could go underground and become quasi-conscious and you become not even aware. But what happens is it splits awareness so that you're always kind of obsessing about what's going on and have a hard time focusing which is one of the reasons that we hear some of comments from family members uh, and significant others like, you know, ever since such and such happened, it's like he or she is here but not here. That's because there's this quiet, obsessive attempt to resolve the unresolvable going on in, in the background or, or kind of semi, you know, remotely from awareness. And with that, there's some spike of intrusion where certain triggers create this sense of it's happening again and it feels like you're reliving it in real time. That's another one of the hallmark symptoms of PTSD with PTSD. It's not like an ordinary memory. It's an intrusive memory that kind of displaces you from your, your grounding of where you are, who you are, and what state. So people who have PTSD have symptoms that feel, make them feel like they're abnormal when they're not. It makes them feel like they're crazy, displaced, dissociative, if you will. And in fact, uh, it feels like they've entered another universe. It's, it's like they've disappeared in plain sight is, is one of the ways that I've characterized it over the years. They, they've just kind of gone to uh, outside of themselves. They become numb or hypersensitive or some combination they're in, and they, they just kind of blank out for a period of time. That doesn't necessarily mean the three-faces of Eve sort of drama of, of blanking out and becoming someone else, but that just means kind of either for a split second or longer, feeling like you're not really in the room. And the pain and the reminders are so overwhelming that you just kind of relive it in real time in a sensory flooding phenomenon. And that's very, very spooky. And that's one of the reasons that um, one of the first creative um, people to capture that phenomenon was Rod Serling, who wrote the scripts for The Twilight Zone. And not many people are aware of this, but he served... um, as an airborne ranger in the South Pacific and had core symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder that haunted him through his life, uh, including cigarette addiction, which killed him in his early 50s. So it's a powerful um, sequence of symptoms and events that really change cognition, thinking, interpersonal style, ability to feel safe. And, and another key symptom you see is when it's really flaring is hypervision. And hypervigilance feels like paranoia, but it's really not. Uh, It's really kind of this sense that you are being uh, exposed to vulnerability and sometimes minor cues will feel like a big deal. And the other odd paradox about PTSD is that people who have this are pretty darn good at handling crisis, but they're pretty terrible at handling day-to-day ordinary stuff. So it's a contradiction. There are many contradictions within me the world of having PTSD, and I could certainly go on with many other examples of that, but, you know, this this difference, this change in the way that you process events and thoughts and and what is fearful and what is safe. So there's always this sense of danger is always looming, and yet there's this desire to seek out um, challenge or impossible odds, and we see that in some self-defeating relationship patterns and behaviors and cycles. Plus, we also see a tendency to try to make the feeling go away or disappear. And actually, one of things that I've been talking about quite often now with some uh, patients I work with is the the instinct that seems to go on with, with active PTSD, and that is just leave me alone and let me think this through until I figure it out, and then, then when I figure it out, I'll come back to where I fit into the rest of the world. But I'd rather be someplace in rural Alaska or in my bunker, safe alone, and just I don't want to get near anybody until I've got this all figured out. And, of course, it, this is something that defies cognition only. That's why cognitive approaches are not sufficient by themselves in most instances, except for lighter variants of PTSD. It requires a multidisciplinary and multidimensional sort of approach for the more complicated manifestations where it kind of digs in deeper and causes disruption in, in a multitude now, of dimensions. Well, So I'm so used
0: to talking about
2: this. You asked me a question, I could go
0: on and on. I'll I'll just interject when I need to because I'm I'm thinking about our listeners and our listeners have had major crises and, you know, may have some co-occurring disorders like drug or alcohol abuse and maybe they've been horrifically abused most of their life or maybe they've been through some sort of major trauma in their family where they saw their Fam, you know, a family member shoot another family member. So right. if they start experiencing some of those symptoms, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that um, they'll have this cognitive intrusion and they may mm-hmm. even feel like they're disassociating some. Correct. Um, yeah. And, and give me two or three other, in simple terms, um responses that they may be dealing with that says, I am not okay and this requires the help of a specialist?
2: Well, a couple of the core symptoms, one of the the hallmark symptoms is disruption in sleep. So, you know, there's this tendency to not be able to fall asleep or stay asleep, and very often there are intrusive nightmares that, that come and go, sometimes with triggers, sometimes without them. Um, in addition, there's this tendency to want to isolate from other people or feeling like you're not good enough. Or conversely, there's this sense of superiority that no one can possibly understand me. So there are mixed signals that are sent out in terms of key relationships, it's like come here and stay away, uh, that, mm-hmm. that really put this barrier between you and other people. And, and the three things that I always encourage people who develop PTSD to think about that are necessary in order to make progress, and this really gets into the core issues of co-occurring stuff, um, are, are the three S's, sleep, safety, sobriety. You cannot get well, you cannot get better with PTSD symptoms until you're in an environment that is safe. So if you're in an abusive relationship, you've got to literally disabuse yourself or get out of that relationship and get into a place of safety where you are able to, you know, Detach and work through and heal and recover. Mm-hmm. Sleep is vital because if you, you're constantly sleep deprived, you can't really redo the injury that's done on a biological and uh, cognitive level in terms of, of brain chemistry and, and arousal patterns, which is also part of this. There's a hyperstartle, hypervigilant response. And as I mentioned earlier, this tendency to sometimes seek out um, intensity. It's hard to get away from that unless you start getting rest and you um, need sleep and you need safety. And then, of course, sobriety. Uh, so many people with um, post traumatic stress disorder, especially when it's active, use chemicals to self medicate. They want to numb it out, they want to make it go away, they can want to drink it away or drug it away until they forget. And it, that's a fantasy, of course, but it's a seductive one because temporarily, if you have a blackout or if you drink or drug enough, it makes you feel like, oh, gee, I'm done with it. But in actuality, what the are using does is deepen the injury and it only numbs you temporarily and you find yourself in far worse shape. So the three S's are vital. We need sleep, safety, sobriety in order to really begin healing. And, and that's you know, kind of what we look at in when this is active how to kind of stop the crisis, how to create um, some traction so that people can start um, healing because this is difficult stuff to work with. And, again, it, it's, it's difficult to do this in isolation, and isolation is one of the instincts that people have. So they're in denial of their symptoms along with the co-occurring addictive disorder, and essentially they just kind of want to be left alone to, like, figure it out. And that's just – it doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I would imagine that's what makes so many people with serious PTSD need to be in a residential treatment center or in a hospital setting to to find the safety that they need, even if they're out of the abusive relationship, to find the safety to begin to work on some of these issues.
2: Yes, and oftentimes that is necessary because it takes, it takes time out from all the distractions, intensity, or the sense of non-safety, and changing your your environment can be a game changer. It saves lives, and it can help people uh, detox from the chemicals as well as the emotional surges, and safety is important in, in that milieu, and that's what, what tends to happen is that there's structure, consistency, and support that you can't get um, just staying where you're at. And, and, again, cases differ. There are some, some individuals in some circumstances where you can achieve this on an outpatient level, but when the symptoms are powerful and unrelenting, uh, sometimes there is no no better choice than to go into um, a residential treatment program and afford yourself the time and the um, holding environment that permits people to work through um the, the issues that are so, so powerful. That, um, but they you know they can be really, we see a lot of tremendous changes. One of the fantasies that we see, the fantasy expectation is that somehow we have in our toolkit a way of making it all go away. You know, the fantasy uh-huh. is make it like it never happened. And, of course, that's not realistic. And part of what you learn uh, in whatever level of therapy or support or care that you're working with is that you learn to coexist with it, you learn to understand it, you learn to articulate it. And in fact, one of the things that I try to encourage the clinicians as well as clients is you've got to learn how to explain this to other people because if you can't do that well, and by explaining that, I don't mean at a full level, but at least being able to describe it in a way that interrupts power because it is the mysticism of its power, the inability to articulate it, and its intrusive, um, almost demonic nature that really causes so much disruption. So increased clarity, and it's not just the understanding, it's the integration that occurs with finding a way to articulate it. You know, back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, we, we overemphasized just finding words to describe it or words to express it. That's not alone sufficient, but it's part of the um, necessary uh, set of skills that we try to develop so that the extraordinary becomes more ordinary and the intrusive nature of this becomes far less like potent. And we see some amazing changes and amazing improvements. But again, we've got to have those those shifts in um, behavior starting off with um sobriety, sleep, and face You you yeah. can't treat this yeah. in a war zone.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And so at the meadows, when when a patient comes to the meadows, they um, obviously are working with you individually, and do they work also in groups?
2: Actually, groups are extraordinarily helpful. It accelerates the healing process exponentially. Okay. And in the old days, we used to only think in terms of individual therapy because that was the original model of the analytic method, but um, and and Today's world we see the uh, combination of individual therapy and group therapies used judiciously as really accelerating the healing process because there's something magical about hearing from another person the same sort of symptoms and dynamics that you're you're feeling. And when it's done in, in a constructive way, facilitated by skilled professionals, you're getting the sort of input that helps helps people um, Become stronger as a unit and as survivors, rather than uh, feeling like uh, victims. Because you know thats, that's what a um, hallmark of a healthy group process is finding strength and meaning from the misery. And a good individual and group therapy environment and a good treatment program will help empower, not just um, mirror or reflect. Our, mm-hmm. our job is to help. Um, instill hope and instill uh, strength, because some of the most incredibly strong people that you'll ever come across have really taken some pretty intense um, traumatic singular episodes or multiple episodes, and it's that transformation that makes them extraordinarily inspiring and helpful to others. Um, and actually that's part of the reason the group process works is that you're not only being helped, you're helping someone else by, by um, explaining and understanding and dealing with the um, transformations that are necessary for you to um, find your balance again. And, it, again, so the recovery process is not easy. It takes a lot of work, takes a lot of strength, and a lot of support, and it takes time. But it really gets accelerated when you're put in an environment where you can pull together the uh, variety of tools and levels of care and skill sets um, to really um, accelerate the joint process.
0: Well,
1: I would why, bet, you know, and
0: especially because so many of these people also uh, may feel suicidal. And so, again, to to find out that a lot of their feelings are normal within the context yes. of what they've been through helps to not only normalize how they're feeling, but obviously to provide the support they need to keep working ahead and mo- keep moving Correct. forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a matter of
2: fact, the suicidal feelings are so common, it's one of the standard questions in assessing and doing screening for post-traumatic stress disorder in the in the veteran community. Um, it's like, have you ever felt like hurting yourself? And, and, you know, people who have PTSD almost invariably answer that yes. I mean, people who don't have PTSD sometimes say the same thing, but it's one of those hallmark um, symptoms of, of hopelessness and futility and, and feeling like one wants to end it all. Uh, that being said, that doesn't necessarily mean that they become actively suicidal, but it's part of that ideation, and very often we see self-invalidating behavior, self-sabotage, that's most common. And the other thing that we see, which is they, sometimes under-articulated, we see um, the opposite, we see workaholism. We see um, people committed to mission and becoming by working too much. So work itself can become a quadrant drug, if you will, and it interferes with the balance than it is necessary in order to make peace with all that inner chaos.
0: Well, that makes 100% sense. Now, if somebody believes that they might be suffering from PTSD, uh, obviously you want them to have a treatment provider who's good at what they do or that has the program that's the right fit for them. So what should they look for? in a treatment provider,
2: and a treatment program? Well, I think important is finding um, a level of trust and trustworthiness in the individuals and in the systems, but not looking for perfection. It's a bit of a paradox, because I think one of the resistance factors is I've got to find someone who completely understands me instantaneously, and that's a little bit hard to do. Um, So one has to have some... Flexibility, but at the same time have high standards. I mean, the person that you seek out and the program that you go to needs to have a clue as to what it feels like to be powerless and what it feels like to be, um, you know, turned inside out and feel, feeling without um, power or hope. So there, there needs to be a chemistry, a sense of trust, relative trust, because perfect trust is almost impossible when you've got active PTSD,
1: and right. a sense
2: that. There is empathy without um, just empathy only because you need strength from that institution or from that provider. You need encouragement and, and empathy because empathy isn't enough and being told what to do isn't enough. You need a combination of um, the voices and, and in, in a in a residential setting, you need different voices telling you different messages in a coherent way that is strengthening and validating. So, for example, in, in, in a place like the meadows, one of the things that is necessary is to confront the addiction, but at the same time, to the survivor, and that's a difficult thing to do when we have got two problems co-occurring, which is very common. You've got an addiction issue, which may be in early resolution or barely, you know, being recognized and treated, and that behavior needs to be confronted in a constructive way, and at the same time. You need to be soothed as a survivor, so and and, and a good system knows how to uh, orchestrate those voices so that they're empowering, not enabling, and not um, dismissive. Um, institutions and individual providers who don't do that find ways to blame the, the the patient or the client, and that's something that not should not be tolerated by the same token, though you need to as a as a consumer as a client, you need to be able to handle. Constructive, loving, tough love feedback from a provider who you um, trust, as well as the peer group that um, you can find power in that peer process as well.
0: Okay, and so obviously it's that delicate balance between the tough love approach as well as the caring, nurturing, connected relationship approach. So, as a as somebody who has this disorder. You're going to be looking for somebody that you can absolutely trust, but you also know they're pushing you.
2: That's correct. That's
0: mm-hmm. correct. And you
2: also want to find levels of expertise and specialty experience. So okay. you want to have people who can do things that are known to help facilitate recovery and do specialty pieces, such as you know, um, training you in mindfulness, sorts of endeavors, uh, certain forms of yoga, tai chi, some sensory experiences. Um, EMDR, things of these this sort when used in in concert with a general environment that is containing, soothing, empowering, really help lift you to the next level. But using a technique in isolation as an outpatient and thinking one one maneuver is going to fix all is oftentimes a setup for frustration. So it's a question of using specialized techniques along with is the stalk of a safe environment and, and, and a holding environment that gives you um, the mirroring the feedback and nurturing and the tough love that you need in order to find sobriety and not engage in that self-invalidating pattern where you're blaming yourself secretly for everything and you're reliving, um, you know, you're, you're walking around uh, living hell sort of thing with this un- Um, unaddressable internal conflict that has no answers. So acceptance, the core things that that we we try to encourage, that I've tried to encourage individually and in systems that I've worked with, is working Mm -hmm. toward, and and, and the 12 steps work toward the same goal. Um, But it's it's even more difficult for people that are trauma survivors, and that is acceptance and forgiveness. But the forgiveness usually involves self-forgiveness for survivors because, uh, ironically, even though they've been victimized by others, they take on... Um, the attribution that they're to blame for everything, don't you know? So I kind of view PTSD as kind of a variant of codependency on steroids as well as kind of mm-hmm. spiritual crisis, thinking that they are responsible for what went wrong. And if you look at military units, the military helps train you to think that way because you're responsible for the life of your buddy. And if that buddy dies, it's your fault. So there's, there's training that enhances that.
1: Um, as well as
2: just this fault that's within us that, that tells us to take care of other people and to take responsibility when things go wrong and you feel bad about the outcome. There's this tendency to uh, over-attribute control where you had no control. So forgiveness is part of that paradigm. or forgiving yourself as well as sometimes working on forgiveness of the perpetrator in the situation that's really, really tough to stuff. Um, so forgiveness and acceptance are really tough pieces of this work, but achievable in finding some meaning from, from the misery. And, and just to, to remind listeners of a very famous and very important quote uh, from Victor Frankl, who, who wrote about uh, his experience going through the concentration camps, um, what we look for is a change in attitude. And his, his quote is, when everything around you gets out of control, the only thing you can change is your attitude. And that's really what a good clinician and a good system and a good specialist helps the client do is shift attitude so it's not all about me. It's so flame and, and also, ironically, I, I refer to the paradox. I didn't mention it. before one of the hallmark um, internal dynamics of PTSD. I call it shame-based arrogance because simultaneously, there's shame-based thinking that we see with a lot of addictive disorders. Don't you if you got to know me, you would know how inadequate I am, but by the same mm-hmm. token, there is arrogance in saying that you have no idea what real trauma is like to stay away from me because you're 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 unworthy of my company or presence so those two contradictory voices really shut out relationships which are essential for uh sustenance in the human tradition i mean we 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 need um support as well as food and air and water. And the final thing that I'll mention, and it's kind of inferred in what I'm saying, but it's important, and certainly clear in what uh, Victor Prong will talks about, we need hope and meaning going forward. And that's not something that a provider can instill in you or, or um, a treatment program can instill in you, but it needs to be kind of inferred and, and, and part of that embedded environment. And that is, you know, we need to help empower people to find hope and meaning as, as they recover kind of like a variance of the 12th step except with some some um, specific dialogue that really addresses the um, inner turmoil and the inner struggle people with, with traumatic underpinnings have to deal with. So it's complicated, but here's the uh, final paradox of it. The yeah, to and this then I want to ask you one simple.
0: question about this. Sure. This is fascinating. Sure, sure. Continue. Well, I was going to say, so, okay, Obviously, they need hope and meaning, and they need self forgiveness and acceptance, right. and and they need that support. This, you look at PTSD as a chronic um, and physical condition, correct? Yes, yes. So, so then, a chronic and are,
2: phasic condition. Hmm?
0: Well, go ahead. Chronic and no,
2: it's it's chronic and phasic. It, it comes and it goes. So even when you're better, it will oh. get sent off, but it need not set off crisis. So, you know, this is kind of the normalization of expectation that we try to encourage, that you're going to live with this, but it, it's not going to be a, a, a game-changing destroyer. It's something that can actually strengthen you over time, but you may have some bad days, kind of like being sober. You <laughs> know, every day is a challenge, but you get stronger over time, but not perfect. So the same is true with, with post-traumatic stress disorder, and it is you know, it's a complicated condition that affects your biology as well as your, your your outlook on the world, which is why it needs some address in terms of compensating for the biological factors, which doesn't necessarily only need medication. That's not the only path. but nutrition, exercise, self-care. You know, I, I've always been a strong believer that people who deal well with this disorder um, become really... Well attuned to, what I call scrupulous self-care. They understand when they're out of balance, when they need to rest, and how to pace themselves. They nourish themselves well. They go to the gym. They do it. They do all the things that are necessary to keep their critical balance. And they know that if they go, if they miss a few things, that their thinking might change, and they know how to correct it. So that's part of the skill set that we try to encourage in keeping balance. All that balance and integration. You know. I, I may be sounding a little bit fuzzy and new agey and talking about these general concepts, but it's a lot of hard work and a lot of steps pulling it together to find that balance and the forgiveness and the lifestyle and the structure that is necessary to contain um, the injury and, and find enough healing so that you keep in balance and stay integrated and on a path that is meaningful to you.
0: Okay, so then being that it is chronic and phasic, it Mm -hmm. is something that can be managed.
2: Absolutely.
0: And having those life skills and utilizing Mm -hmm. all the resources to both prevent some of the onset or the triggers as well as to keep it reduced to a manageable level. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, do you uh, are there any books that you would could recommend for our listeners who believe they may be suffering from post traumatic stress
2: well the the most important book that I recommend for clinicians as well as people who have PTSD is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. There is nothing written that I found that is more meaningful and inspiring than reading um, his book about uh what it takes to get through unmanageable, chaotic um, circumstances. So that's a very empowering, positive book to read. Um, another book that I would recommend is, um, and I didn't even get a chance to mention this, is, is called Until Tuesday, which is a book about uh, an army captain who um, gets paired up with a service dog. And sometimes bonding with animals is, is a key towards safety and healing and recovery and getting better. So a lot of the younger veterans now are working with um, facilities and resources that help train service animals, and, and that, that's a game changer. So those are two books that are essential. And then for those who have been in, in combat experiences, um, What It's Like to Go to War is, is uh, by Carl Marlantes is also a great book to read. Uh, I've got a question
0: for you. This show is about sexual addiction, and we have a lot of veterans um, who describe post-traumatic stress. Do you believe that they, too, oftentimes medicate with sexual addiction as if it was a drug or an alcohol?
2: Absolutely, yes. As a matter of fact, I've come across a a disproportionate number of younger veterans and actually some Mm -hmm. older ones that have done that. Uh, and have gotten into um, sexualized acting out because it does numb you and it does create this obsessional distraction that gives you this illusion that it's, everything is going to get better if I get enough or if I do enough. And it's acting out and it's 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 almost identical to all the other self-medicating, self-invalidating sorts of um, outlets that you can find. And there is an addictive pattern. And some soldiers, by the way, also have gotten... Um, exposed to um, pornography as a way while in service as a way of stress reducing because there is some anxiety reducing um, component to that just as there is of taking a drink so it does it does some things in terms of re regulating it just doesn't do what we look for because if it becomes any any strategy that becomes excessive or addictive keeps you off balance. And so as I mentioned before, workaholism is another ism, if you know another addiction that can um can also create symptoms and consequences, but there are a lot of pro social rewards for that, at least in terms of monetary, but you're left alone. And I guess the same is true with sexual addiction, you're you kind of have a lot of partners, but you're
0: essentially isolated. Absolutely. Well,, this has been fascinating, and I truly believe that um you know we've been in, in war now for the last thirty years more than we haven't yes. and so this is just epidemic and I so appreciate your passion for this work you you do an excellent job, you came so highly recommended oh, thank um if you. somebody wanted to check out the Meadows and find out. Um, the services, the treatment programs, the workshops that they have to offer, what would they need to do?
2: You know, you, you've caught me off guard. I don't have the 800 numbers memorized. But certainly going yeah. to the website and looking up the meadows um, in Wickenburg, Arizona is is the first step. So, you know, that that's easy to do. Or if you go to my website or I'm sure you would have something posted on your show. Um, but Absolutely. easy to find.
0: So- to the meadows which is www.meadows.com or they can go to your website which i think it's
2: meadows.org if i'm not mistaken
0: you're exactly right meadows.org and then
2: your website is Uh, com, and i'm also connected with the meadows website so either way the resources are out there let let me just put a, a words of encouragement in terms of finding resources the okay. tools and the providers are out there. We've become a lot more sophisticated. Clients need to be assertive and find the right place, the right providers, the right skills, and not um, not become discouraged. This does take work. It takes quality providers and it takes tenacity, um, but it does get a lot better. I, I wouldn't be doing this after 33 years of frontline work and what I consider the, probably the hardest line of mental health that you can think of, I wouldn't be mm-hmm. doing it if I didn't find it personally rewarding and have seen some amazing changes. And I do all the time. So as hopeless as it might feel, there there are skilled people, skilled programs, skilled providers that can help uh, individuals get sober, get their lives balanced, and uh, not become normal because no, but I'm not sure what that is actually, but they become become Um, enhance and strengthen survivors with a message, and to borrow again from Viktor Frankl, they can find meaning from their misery and they become become agents of support and become pillars of strength for others um, in helping individuals to heal from the all-too-frequent syndrome that we call post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic phenomena, whatever we want to call this, big T's, little T's, things can get better with the right... um, the right timing, the right tools, and the right support, and, and things really become um, vastly improved.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Borskin, and, and I appreciate your feedback on this very important topic, and thanks to the Meadows. And You have a great week, and we'll look forward to chatting again.
2: Great, and if your listeners have any questions directly person uh, directed to me, they can email me at um, at my website um, or just you know um, contact me via the menu. I'd be happy to confer, answer specific questions. But it's a privilege speaking about this. I, I love talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. You've done a very good job in permitting me to kind of um, hit the high points. It usually takes several hours to fully explain it to um an audience of professionals, but I, I think we've done. Uh, Pretty good introduction.
0: Absolutely. And thanks again for your passion because you can feel it all the way in Indiana. So thank you so much. And, and we <laughs> will we'll talk Kick to it. you soon. All, all right. right. Thank you. Bye,
2: next.
0: Bye. As you can see, he's very passionate. He knows his stuff. He studied post traumatic stress disorder for 30 years. I mean, how lucky is that that we could have somebody on the show that has made it his passion and his mission? to help this um, epidemic, uh, people that have this kind of symptomatology um, can feel very immobilized by it. So feel free to email me at carolthecoach at AOL.com. If you think that you suffer from symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, you heard him say that sexual addiction is something that oftentimes medicates the tough feelings underneath this. And you know, when we've got people that are experiencing cognitive intrusion, and that means that they can't keep the thoughts out of their head, and they tend to disassociate and go away from wherever they are, whether they're at work, with their families, uh, with friends, when there are when there are difficulties with sleep, and safety, and sobriety that's the time when perhaps you need to contact the Meadows at www.meadows.org and look into what services they have available specifically for you. Okay, so next week we've got another riveting show, and I am so looking forward to working with Stuart Ball, who's going to be talking about addiction in general and how sexual addiction is fused with other addictions. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself and always remember there are resources available to you by listening to this show. I'll get you where you need to be. So don't give up, don't give in, and... um, And let's work this thing out together. You have a great week, and I'll see you next Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Sex Help with Carol the Coach.